Love that we are in the season that we are in and beginning to sing these Christmas songs and always a joy to, to gather on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, with you all. I want to begin this morning by asking this question, just as you went through your week and as you come to the beginning of a new week, have you really stopped to consider this past week how much the Lord is committed to your personal holiness? Have you stopped to consider how much others are committed to your holiness? Obviously, from the Word of God, we know that He desires that we walk in a manner worthy. Jonathan prayed about that. We're singing about it. Um, thinking back to last week, we're reminded that God has left us on this earth to be lights, to, to shine. And we also know just by digesting some of the week's social media and news that we still live in a crooked and perverse generation. I don't think it got any less crooked or any less perverse. But as we come to Philippians 2, we're reminded that God has given us his authoritative word, this authoritative letter, as a reminder that we are to live out our heavenly citizenship in a way that honors and pleases God. You see, the Philippian church, our church, Grace Church Monterey Bay, every local church is called to represent Jesus Christ well. And how do we do that? We need to be united, we need to be joy-filled, and we need to have a gospel witness to the world. And this morning, as we return to Philippians, we come to a section here that elaborates on that very thing, that how is the Christian sanctified? And really, as we just think back to previous weeks, there's three parts to our sanctification we learn there in verse 12 that it's you, really. It's, it's you who is working out your salvation. You are putting forth the effort. You, you are exerting energy. You are working in such a way that you are pursuing Christ-likeness. And yet at the same time, we learn right after verse 12 and verse 13 that it's God who is in work in you, both to will and to work. He's even changing your desires. He's conforming your desires into that of Christ. But there's a third aspect to our growth and our spiritual maturity. And that is God uses people. He uses you, obviously, and he's working in you, but yet God has given you people. The person that you're sitting next to, that is a gift from God to you. And I'm not talking just about your spouse because you're like, well, I don't have a spouse right here. Well, but that person next to you anyway is a gift to you. The church is a gift. People who labor for your spiritual growth you see, in the first 11 verses there, Paul's already described all that Jesus accomplished through his condescension. He came to this earth, he humbled himself. The incarnation, we've sang about that. He ascends and then he's exalted to the highest position and he does all that for your spiritual good to make you more like him. The example we have of Jesus humbling himself, it serves as our example. So he not only provides for us salvation and sanctification, but he also models that for us. When you think about Jesus and our time in Philippians, you realize that Jesus, he obediently fulfilled all of God's word, and he did that faithfully and joyfully. In fact, the Bible tells us that he delighted to do God's will. Jesus depended on the sovereignty of God at every moment of his life. It was his trust in God's good plan that kept him from what Paul says we're not to do, grumbling and disputing. We never heard that come out of Jesus' mouth. He never complained, not once. Of course, Jesus is God's perfect son. So when we're called to be children of God, while well, Jesus is the perfect son of God, the beloved son of God, he was faithful, blameless, innocent. He was without sin, without blemish. And he provides the straight path that leads to God while living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Jesus said that himself, that he is in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Jesus is the light of the world. He exposed the deeds of darkness and he lights the way for a relationship to God. And when you think about no one that's ever lived has ever held fast or held forth the word of God like Jesus and so when we read Philippians 2, we go to the heights of Jesus's humility and incarnation and perfect life. And you might begin to say, well, here Paul is calling me to a life of humility, but how do I do that? Because Jesus is perfect and I'm not Jesus. 
Anyone feel like they're not Jesus this week? Yeah, all the hands should go up. And so we might be discouraged and say, well, I I see what Paul is commanding here, but it's easy for Jesus to do because Jesus is God. You say, I can't do that. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried this week, but I've failed. And Paul says, well, hold on, because it's not just Jesus. And what he does here in the rest of chapter two is he sets forth three examples of humble, sacrificial, joy-filled living. He provides himself as an example in verses 16 through 18. And then he'll switch his attention to his young disciple, Timothy, the one that he poured in and invested in, in verses 19 through 24. And then finally, he gives you another example, and it's the example of a brother who came all the way to minister to Paul's needs. It's brother Epaphroditus. And he does that in verses 25 through 30. So, When we think about Philippians and then try to take a bird's eye view, what we see is that in the first 16 verses, Paul gives us the principles of how we're to live this humble life that Jesus modeled for us. And then the rest of the chapter, he provides a pattern. And it's not just Jesus, but he says, look at me, look at Timothy, look at Epaphroditus. Now, I want to remind you that these three brothers, they're in Rome. Paul is sitting in prison, and they're with Paul as he's writing this letter to the Philippians. All of them are together, their hearts are knit together, and they're working and praying toward one common goal. And that one common goal is this letter is penned and it gets sent off, is that the Philippian believers would look more like Christ, that they would mature in their faith. That's their goal. They desired to see this church reflect Christ. And Paul wants our church to reflect Christ. And Jesus wants our church, Grace Church Monterey Bay, to reflect Christ. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start back in verse 14, and then we'll read through 18. This is God's word to us. Paul again says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's the prohibition. Now here comes the purpose for the prohibition. He says in verse 15, So that you will be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, world, holding fast the word of life. And now we get to the pattern. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Oh Lord, would you please open up this passage of scripture so that it would be clear, that it would be powerful, and that you would work out its truths in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our outline for this morning, as we look at the pattern of ministry, we want to talk about ministry. It's part of our mission statement. Uh, One of the things that we're trying to accomplish here is we are ministering to one another. We're ministering to the church. And so when you think about the pattern of ministry, what I want you to realize from this text is that ministry is satisfying. Uh, Paul identifies this as a satisfying ministry. He has reasons to boast, to exult. It's not only a satisfying ministry, but it's a strenuous ministry. And we see that as Paul uses words like run and labor. It's not only a strenuous ministry, but it is a sacrificial ministry, a sacrificing ministry. And then finally, as we conclude our time, we'll look at this element of it being a shared joy, mutual joy that comes from me serving you, you serving me, and us serving together. It is a shared joy ministry. If you're taking notes, here's our main idea. When we, you and me, Christians, when we sacrificially serve the Lord and one another, we will experience joy in this life and even more in the life to come. I'll say it again. When we, sacrifice, when we sacrificially serve the Lord and one another, we will experience joy in this life and in the life to come. Well, let's get started there on point number one. Ministry is a satisfying ministry. Look what Paul says there in verse 16. After he says, holding fast the word of life, he then says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to boast because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. Paul begins here again with another so that. That is a purpose clause. 
Paul wants the Philippians to prove themselves blameless and innocent and children of God and in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, shining as lights in the world. And he gives the reason so that he, Paul, can boast. Now, if you're not familiar with the Apostle Paul and you read that, it seems like it's a little self-serving. Wait a second, Paul, like you're, you're investing in me, you're pouring into me, you're doing all this work for me so that you can boast. So we have to ask the question, what, what does Paul mean by this? Is he trying to take credit for the Philippians' sanctification? Is he, is he going so far as to even take credit for their salvation? And you think, if, if we're getting into the mind of Paul, would he have a legitimate reason to say, well, hey, that was my ministry. I, I did go to, to Philippi. I did preach the word. Lydia did get saved through my ministry. The, the jailer heard us singing, and we did share the gospel, and he did get saved from the Lord using me. And the demon-possessed girl, she was relieved from that possession, and that, that, that was me. Paul could have said those things. The church really was the fruit of his ministry. So maybe Paul has changed his mind, changed his tune here, and now he's beginning to take a little bit of credit he wants a little piece of the glory, and you know better. Is that Paul's attitude? No. You say, well, did Paul boast? Absolutely, Paul boasted. But what did Paul continually boast in? That's right, in Christ. He's not boasting in his own achievements. No doubt Paul was a boaster. Galatians 6.14 says this, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 15 and verse 17, therefore in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. And then he says this, in things pertaining to God, for I will not be, for, for I will not be bold to speak of anything except what Christ has brought about through me, leading to the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And these here and Many other passages help us understand that Paul, yes, he did boast, but he always boasted in what God had accomplished through him. Paul's boasting was not about self-glorying. Paul's boasting was more about rejoicing. It was an exuberant exaltation and joy that God had used him in the life of others to bring about growth and maturity you see, when the Philippians work out their salvation with fear and trembling, when they put a stop to their grumbling, when they hold out the gospel, God is glorified and that gives Paul great joy and reason to boast. You see, more than Paul's own freedom, more than his own reputation, how people are looking at Paul, he says, look, I will always boast in what God is accomplishing through me in the lives of other believers. Now, he adds to this a time of this boasting. When will this boasting that Paul speaks of occur? Look there at the text. It says, in the day of Christ. And he's already mentioned this day a couple of times already. Back in 1.6, we see the day of Christ. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it when? In the day of Christ. Philippians 1.10, that you would approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and without fault until the day of Christ. And when you talk to Paul, there's one thing that sticks out, that Paul always has his eye on the future. He's thinking about the Christian's future reward, but he's also thinking about the non-believer's future judgments. But Paul's mind is always looking down the road to the finish line and it's helpful for us to remember that because too often I think we're focused on today. And when we're so focused on today and our plans and our affections never move beyond the here and the now, it's easy for us to lose sight of Christ's past work and our future reward. And so Paul, just like me, I had to walk down to the house because my contacts were blurry and I couldn't see. So I said, what do I do? Well, I got to go get my glasses so I can see. Paul wants them to see very clearly, and he reminds even the church in Corinth, he says this in chapter 5 and verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, for we must all appear, church, Christian, before the judgment seat of Christ, 
so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When we evangelize or talk to people, we say, hey, the Lord's coming back or you're gonna die and you're gonna be face to face with the Lord. But that's not all we're saying. You will be judged. God will look at your works. He will look at your life. He will evaluate that. Is it wood, hay, stubble? Is it precious, precious stone? God is coming back. He's coming back as a judge. And as believers, as we stand before Christ and he evaluates our work, we want our work to be evaluated in such a way that we've given our best effort, that, that we've lived for the glory of Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. And it's the same mindset that we need to have. You see, one of the most satisfying things about ministry is that one day we will see the smile of the Lord. And not just in our own lives, but in the lives of others. Uh, All of us long, we desire to hear those words, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. I want you to look to the right or to the left. As thrilling as that is, don't you want that for your spouse? Don't you want to hear Jesus say to your spouse, well done, good and faithful servant? Don't you want Jesus to say that to your kids? Akilah, Titus, Judah, well done, good and faithful servant. It's thrilling to think that Christ will one day affirm and welcome all of his into his kingdom. And Paul tells the Thessalonians, this is why I want to boast. This is why I want to exalt He says to the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse 19, For who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? Is it not even you before our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then he says this in verse 20, For you are our glory and joy. So when we think about ministry, ministry is not about our self-glorification, our self-elevation. No, ministry is is finding our satisfaction, the fact that the Lord is using us to build up others, to pour into others, to invest into others, to see others mature in Christ. And it will be a great delight when the Lord comes back and we see and we hear not only our reward, but we get to see that for others as well. And that is a cause of rejoicing. So ministry, it's satisfying because the Lord gets to use us. We're used by the Lord to build up his church. What a privilege that is. And we get to, in some measure, see the fruit of our ministry here. But in the future, on that final day, when the Lord comes back, there will be a ripple effect that we had no idea. Sometimes you get discouraged. You share the gospel with someone, and it seems like they don't care, that they're not in any way bothered by their sin. They seem to have no interest in spiritual things. But you have no idea what the Lord does with that. Who knows, one, two, three, four, 20, 50 years down the line, you have no idea what that little seed will do. But you will when you get to glory and you'll see that ripple effect of your faithfulness. So ministry is satisfying, but it's also hard work. Ministry is difficult. Look at what Paul says next. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to boast And then he says this, because I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. And this brings us to point number two, that ministry is strenuous. Now, what does he mean, I did not run in vain nor labor in vain? I love this word. The the word run is treko, like you're on a trek, right? This, this This is the idea, the metaphor that Paul is using. He uses this in 1 Corinthians 9 to talk about that life and ministry, it is a big, long race. And we think about running, ministry is both a sprint and a marathon. There are times I hate to sprint. I've always hated to sprint because it's hard. But ministry is sometimes a sprint. You're, you're, you're exerting a maximum amount of energy. You can't do it for long, but, but you're giving it your all. But there's also times where ministry, it's long, it's laborious, it requires endurance, it requires, requires stamina. And that's what Paul says here with the word labor. It conveys a similar idea. Labor just means hard work. It's it's toil, even to the point of exhaustion. 
And Paul uses both of these words, both run and toil, to communicate that, look, ministry is like serious, strenuous training and toil and struggle. And we have to do it even to the point of weariness and exhaustion. You see, serving Christ is not a cakewalk. You don't see any of that in the Bible. Because when you flip through the pages of the New Testament, what you see is that, hey, the Christian life is a hard life. And ministering and serving people is difficult. Listen to some of the things the Bible describes. First of all, the servants of the Lord are called laborers, hardworking farmers in 2 Timothy 2. We're called to be diligent. We're called to be workmen. We're called to, when we accurately handle the word of truth, not be ashamed. And so we got to work all the more rigorously. We're called good soldiers who endure hardship. We're like athletes. The Bible talks about this reality of struggling to compete. The word it uses is agonismomai. You're you're agonizing in your struggle. Epaphras is mentioned in the scriptures in Colossians 4 as the one who's wrestling in prayer for the care of others. The Bible also describes us taking pains to fulfill our calling, to be ready. Uh, I think Nick uh, communicated this to me this morning. You have to be ready in season and out of season. We're to work hard. Nowhere in the Bible is ministry ever viewed as something you could just get by with minimal effort. You could just do it carelessly, thoughtlessly, unintentionally. And that word vain there, it's used four times in the New Testament, and it just means empty-handed. It's empty. Here's the picture that Paul is, is painting. He's in a team race. Paul is in a team race. And he's got his team, and he's worked with his team, and he's trained his team, and he's reminded his team that this race is worth it. But we have to struggle and we have to strive and we have to practice and we have to work hard. And Paul, as he runs in this race, he gets to the end of the race and he looks back to see his teammates and his teammates have grown indifferent. Some of them just started jogging. Some of them are walking. Some of them just stopped completely and sat down. And Paul is saying, look, when I get to the end of the finish line and I look back, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see that all this effort, all this toil, all this instruction, all the preaching, all the ministry is in vain. That would not be something that Paul would boast in. And so he's terrified this, and he, and he tells the Philippians, I do not want to run in vain. Let me ask you this, Christian. Do you know someone who's been laboring on your behalf? Maybe it's a pastor, maybe it's someone who's discipling you, maybe it's a mom, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's a friend who's invested many, many hours of praying with you, of discipling you, of teaching you the word, knowing that others have labored diligently for your spiritual joy and progress in the faith. How do you respond? How do you honor them? Let's not give them prizes and money and You know how you honor them? You just obey the Lord. You be faithful. You be diligent to continue on, to keep pressing on. Now, obviously, the Lord knows our hearts, and he honors our efforts. I think, Nick, you said that this morning, right? We didn't have it up on the screen, but the Lord knows our hearts. And so in one sense, all of our labor is not going to be in vain if we're doing it for the Lord. And yet, in another sense, if we refuse to walk in obedience then we do bring great dishonor to those that have invested so much for our spiritual growth. So ministry, again, it is very satisfying, but it's also very strenuous. It demands hard work, but it's worthy work. Jesus is worth all the toil, all the effort. And seeing those who have invested in us, when they're honored in the last day, it will cause us to have joy. But Paul also says here that ministry requires a great sacrifice. Look at verse 17. Paul says there, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. I love this word. I think it's up here. This idea of being poured out, spendomai. 
You just think of that word when you, when you hear, I'm being spent. Given your all. There's nothing left. You, you are spent. Now, as believers on this side of the cross, this whole idea of being a drink offering is a foreign concept. Uh, we don't talk about offerings very often. There, there is no demand on us because Christ is the final offering. So we don't think about grain offerings and sin offerings and thank offerings. And so we're, we're kind of removed from this whole concept of sacrificial offerings. So what's the picture that Paul is painting here with this reference about being poured out as a drink offering? He's using very vivid image. You see, in the Old Testament, in the pagan world, in the Jewish mindset, and even in the Roman mindset, this talks about worship, sacrifices that were made to the gods. And those sacrifices were animal sacrifices that were consumed by the fire. But to complete a sacrifice, what would happen is, a worshiper would bring some wine or some oil and pour that over the sacrifice. And that was a way to both symbolize and demonstrate that this sacrifice is complete. And so someone would come and it was called a libation. They would pour out a drink offering. And the fire from the the offering would raise up that wine or raise up that oil and smoke to the Lord. And in the Lord, it would be a sweet-smelling aroma where he accepts that sacrifice. That's the idea that is being painted here. And you can read about all of the details about how to do a sacrifice and what's required of a sacrifice back in Exodus, and it's in Leviticus, and it's in Numbers. But the question here is, when Paul says that he's being poured out as a sacrifice, what exactly is he talking about? What is Paul referring to? Is he talking about his martyrdom, that he's going to give up his life as a sacrifice? Or is he talking about all of his current distress and the persecution he's endured and the struggling and striving that he's currently in? Well, when you pick up a commentary, you have some who are, yes, convinced of martyrdom. The only other place in the New Testament where Paul talks about this idea of a drink offering is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And this is what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 6. He says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. It sounds like what Paul is saying is he's pouring out his life. I am going to die. I'm giving up my life here and now. That's the last correspondence that Paul has to Timothy there in 2 Timothy. But others will say, no, he's he's actually making a more general reference to his current sufferings. He's not necessarily talking about his death or his martyrdom. And I think that is the right view. And you say, why is that the right view? A couple reasons. And this is important. So we're not just geeking out here. This is important. The grammar helps us. Paul uses a first class conditional clause with a present tense. And you say, Don, what in the world does that mean? This is what it means. It means that he's saying, look, even if I'm being poured out, And he's talking about a present reality. He's saying, since I am currently being poured out, my my imprisonment, my current suffering, all the things that I'm enduring, I am doing this as a drink offering. I think this is also confirmed and reinforced by the fact that Paul uses this word sacrifice in Romans chapter 12. You're familiar with that passage Paul uses sacrificial language to talk about their lives that are being offered up. Not their deaths, but their lives. And you say, well, Dom, why do you make a big deal about that? Well, because of this here. It's, it's real easy for us to say, man, I'm, I, would, I would die for Christ. Peter said that. I will lay down my life for you. And you say, yes and amen, Peter. I would do the same thing. But what happens when the rubber meets the road? Well, it's not so easy just to die for Christ. And it's almost as Jesus says, look, I'm going to prove to you, I'm going to show you how difficult it is to live for me. And then he just lets Peter live a long time. And it's faithful day after day after day after day, living for Christ, that is the sacrifice. It is the dying to self every day that is harder than if someone came in here and just put a gun to all of our heads and said, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, shoot me. That seems pretty easy, but to die to self every day, 
to say, not my will, but your will. That is the sacrifice that I believe Paul is saying he has here. So again, Paul is saying, look, my life is being offered up to God in service to you, Philippians. Everything that I'm going through, all the suffering, all of the trial, even if it means execution eventually, really what it is, it's just a completion of a greater sacrifice, and it's your sacrifice. That is what Paul is referring to here. The word picture, it's powerful, it's palpable. And let me see if I can help us understand this better. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. I'm going to take a little detour, but not really. I want to try to highlight for you this this fascinating story in our Bibles. The narrative, it doesn't provide information or instruction about a drink offering. But what it does do is is it paints an indelible picture in our minds just how significant this drink offering is. Here's the setting in 2 Samuel 23. The Philistines, they have invaded Israel. They've taken over. They're in David's hometown of Bethlehem. And that's got a sting because David is not in his hometown. He's He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Bethlehem. He's actually 15 miles away in Adullam, And he's in a cave, and he's by himself. And it doesn't seem like he has the upper hand. But the setup here in the story is that he's got these mighty men. There's 30 of them. And it highlights three of them. This is like the super squad. This is like the Navy SEALs. What do you have in the Army? Who's like the the elite of the elite? The Green Berets? What about for the Marines? Hey, these are the Avengers right here, okay? These are like the, the, the cream of the crop, the top guys. And there's three of them that you read about in verses 8 through 13, and it's kind of outlining their victories and all that they've done. They're like supermen. And so we pick up the scene there in verse 14, and it says just David gets thirsty. Look there at verse 14. And David was then in the fortress while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. Then David had a craving and said, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. That's all he said. He, 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 he communicates this, kind of speaking out loud, maybe reminiscing about his former days of a child in the well at Bethlehem. And he's thinking about the Philistines being there, and it's probably pretty disgusting to him. And he says, if I would just have a drink of water. And I was talking to Brother Jordan back there uh, this week, and he said, yep, that sounds about right. In the military, if a chief, uh, if a commander says, I desire something, then those under him go and do it. And that's exactly what we have here. These three jump into action. They hear David say, I would like a drink of water. And what do they do? Three dudes. They go and storm Bethlehem and go to the well at the risk of their own life to get Brother David, their king, their captain, their commander, a cup of water, just a few ounces of water. And so we, we don't know all the details, but I'm sure these guys probably go into battle. They got to beat some people up, maybe kill some people, maybe themselves get injured, all to get David some water because David said, I'd really like a glass of water. It's a fascinating story. These guys come back. I'm sure on the way back after a grueling battle and this long journey that maybe one of the guys was tempted to actually drink the water that he got. David's not going to know but they'd rather die than dishonor their king. So they make sure they don't spill the water, they don't drink the water, they don't lose the water, they're gonna bring that water back to David. They come to David, they say, here you go, sir. Here you go, king. Here you go, leader. Here's the water. Look at verse 16. So the three mighty men broke through the camp. The Philistines drew the water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and carried it and brought it back to David. Nevertheless, He was not willing to drink it. What? After all of that, after after all that sacrifice and trouble and planning and turmoil that these three men went through to bring David some water, it says, nevertheless, he was unwilling to drink it. What does the text say? But he poured it out to Yahweh. He doesn't drink the water. He pours it on the ground. And you say, what a waste. 
What a waste. You just said you wanted some, and then you got rid of it. David, what are you doing? What is David doing? He could have drank it. It would have been refreshing. It would have brought back memories. It would have been sweet and tasty and rejuvenating and hydrating. But instead, what David says is, no, you men, you risked your lives for this water. You men made sacrifices. And rather than just enjoying it myself, rather than being pleased by this on my own, I would rather offer it up in worship to the Lord. See, you wanted to honor me by getting me a drink. No, I want to honor you even greater by pouring this out in worship to the Lord. You see, the whole point of a drink offering is that instead of enjoying the drink yourself, the wine yourself, instead of allowing that to make you merry, you're offering up to the Lord as a completion of a sacrifice. And you know what David says? And do you know what Paul says? Paul says, that's me. I am the drink offering. Philippians, you have done so much to serve me, to love me, to care for me. They've given gifts. They've sent Epaphroditus. They're praying for him. They're partnering with him in ministry. They're making huge sacrifices so the gospel will advance. And what Paul is saying is, look, I just want to offer, if I have to, my very life as a completion, as the icing on the cake of your sacrifice. That's what I want to do. I want to honor the Lord and honor you and tell you that you bring me great joy because of your sacrifice on my behalf. You see, Paul, he labored diligently. We know that. He was faithful in ministry. He prayed. He proclaimed the gospel. He pastored. He patiently endured with difficult people. And his whole life was a life that was poured out for the sake of others. That's what it means to be a drink offering. He says, your sacrifice is the greater sacrifice, right? The animal was the main sacrifice. The pouring out of the drink was just, again, the topping on the cake. And so he says, Philippians... You're the ones that are shining as lights. You're the ones that need to stop grumbling and disputing so that you can let your light shine. You're the ones that are united and advancing the gospel. You're the ones that are being faithful to the Lord. You are the greater sacrifice. And it is a joy, it is a privilege, it is an honor to be poured out on your behalf. Paul says there, I'm poured out on top of or upon the real sacrifice, which is their faith. The text says their faith. So here we have all this priestly image, and it's beautiful. But I want you to know this, that before you get to the service, before you get to all the doing, before you get to the serving, the ministry, there's something that has to happen. And that thing is you have to die. Uh, I was sharing with the group this morning the story of, you're familiar with Nate Saint and the missionaries that went off to Ecuador, to take the gospel uh, to people who didn't have the gospel, to the tribes. And the story is told uh, of Nate Saint's son-in-law, who is kind of following in his father-in-law's footsteps on the mission field. And he's in a plane with a pastor, and the pastor tells him, hey, I just want to let you know that I was there that day Nate Saint, your father-in-law, died. The guy Son-in-law looked at him a little strange and said, what do you mean you were with him? There was no one there. And the guy insisted, you know, I was there the day that he died. And again, the response was, I don't think you got the story right. I don't think you know what was going on. He said, no, I was there. You see, before he got on a plane with the other missionaries to go to Ecuador, five years before, I was there in the church service listening to the sermon when Nate Saint laid down his life to be a missionary and give himself to the Lord's work. See, far before he actually laid his life down, he died to himself and said, Lord, that work is worth it. Listen, church, before before we serve, before we sacrifice for one another, we have to die to self. And it's only those that have died Die to your dreams, die to your ambitions, die to your plans in this life, 
and said, no, I'd rather serve the Lord for the rest of my life. But before you serve, you need to die. And this is what Paul is saying here, that your service to me, Philippians, it's just evidence that you have died to self. The way that you're ministering to my needs is evidence that you've already given your life up for the cause of Christ. And he'll talk later on about their financial gift as a sacrifice. And he honors them because of their sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think very critically and I want you to evaluate how you are sacrificing for the Lord. When people talk about worship, I often hear them talk about the 20 minutes before the service or before the preaching, right? That's the worship. And I've known people who actually go from church to church to church because they just like the worship, worship. And they're just talking about the music. But Paul never, ever divorces worship from the entirety of our lives being a sacrifice. Worship and ministry are not two separate ideas But what Paul does throughout his epistles, he perfectly weds these two things together so that when you are serving, you are worshiping. When you're with the little kids and they're running around crazy and you're wiping their mouths and cleaning up after them, you know what you're doing in that moment? That is an expression of your worship. Doxology and duty are two sides of the same coin. And so listen, we we, we labor we fight against sin, we disciple, we, we, we pursue godliness, we read, we pray, we evangelize, we serve one another in all of that, all of that, every single day. You do it today here at our gathering, you'll do it tomorrow. That is worship. So again, I just want to ask you, are you pouring yourself out for Christ and for the gospel? It's a real gut check. I was thinking about this while I was playing games of chess and I kept losing and I kept playing again and I kept losing and I kept playing again. Before I know it, I've spent an hour and a half trying to win a game of chess. And it reminded me of this thing that I heard just a couple weeks ago. Failure in the Christian life is being successful at things that don't matter. Let me say it again. Failure in the Christian life is being successful at things that don't matter. And I think what Paul wants us to hear is don't let that be true of you. Don't don't be giving all of your time and energy and treasure and talents to things that in the end don't matter. You say, well, Dom, help me understand how I can better pour my life out. How can I be a better minister in a sacrificial way? Well, it's real simple. You just read the scriptures and you'll come across this language over and over again. You, You want to know how to be more sacrificial? Here's a couple of things. Psalm 51 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. And the Bible's promises God will not despise that. You want to be more sacrificial? You can just start with having a broken heart over your sin. Psalm 107 says, let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and recount his works with joyful singing. You want to sacrifice to God? Just be happy. Be thankful. Express your gratitude for all that the Lord is doing. Ephesians 5.2, we saw this on the screen earlier, that we are to walk in love just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. You say, man, I got to do all these great things to sacrifice. You, You know what you can do? Just love people. Love people. Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. It's it's pretty simple. It's there in the scripture. Confessing his name, telling him to others, doing good, sharing, All those things are sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord. I think some of us, we get in the habit of doing, 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 doing. We got this Martha kind of mentality where if I'm not doing enough, I'm not serving enough, 
And so we, we, we mistake all of our doing as a proper sacrifice. And the reality is always, always that it comes back to the heart. It comes back to the heart. It's not so much how much you're doing, but with what you're doing is your heart to honor the Lord there. And listen, here's the real test. One of the most practical ways that you can pour yourself out in service to the Lord, you want to know what it is? Here it is. Pray. Pray. That's how you can sacrifice to the Lord. And, And we start there because if you're struggling to pour yourself out in prayer, you're definitely going to find it hard to pour yourself out in practice. You think back to Jesus, the night before he chose his 12 men to do ministry with, what was he doing all night? Before Jesus goes to the cross and pours out his life for the world, what is Jesus doing? He's pouring his life out in prayer. Prayer is a great place to start because prayer is an act of faith and what you're communicating when you go to prayer and you space time to pray and you prioritize pray, prayer, what you're doing is you're communicating to God that, God, I want your presence and I want your power and I want to accomplish your plan and I want to see your people become more like you. So you don't have a problem committing 15, 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, even an hour. Sounds strange but it was modeled for us by Christ, Paul. And we know that we're supposed to pray at all times and for all things. But if you want to sacrifice, you can start there. You can pray. Ministry is satisfying. It's strenuous. It's sacrificial. Now notice also that it allows us to rejoice with others. There's a shared joy in ministry. Look at verse 17 here. The last part of verse 17, it says, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. And you also rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You go, joy, 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 joy down in. That's what Paul is doing here. The the word Cairo is the word used for joy here, and it's four times. Cairo, soon Cairo. Cairo, soon Cairo. I have joy. I share my joy with you. You have joy too. We have a collective joy. It's an infectious joy. He wants the Philippians and every local church to experience this kind of abounding, exuberant joy in serving the Lord together. So that's what he says in verse 17. In verse 18, he switches it from what's presently true, that this is what I currently have, joy, and you have joy, and we have joy together. And now he says, but continue on. He commands it. He demands it. And this is not coming necessarily just from the mouth and mind and pen of Paul. It is, but it's coming from the Lord. The Lord wants us to be full of joy because no one is going to be attracted to Christianity if seems like we have no joy. There's no cause for us to rejoice. They seem like, yeah, they're holy, but, but they don't seem happy. And that's, that can't be. Holiness and happiness go together. So Paul continues in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, rejoice. 4-4, four, four, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I say, rejoice. And then you're reminded that, again, he's in prison. He's had it rough. He's got scars and wounds. He's chained to a Roman soldier. He's unable to travel. He's unable to minister maybe the way he wants to. And again, Paul becomes the pattern for us because he could sit back and complain and murmur and dispute, but instead, what does he do? He rejoices. It's unusual for people to talk about joy and suffering together. There is no other religion that does that. Because if you're not experiencing joy, then God is not for you. For us, though, the Christian, we can suffer. We can experience trial. We can know difficulty. We can know true heartache, and yet at the same time, never, ever have our joy diminished. Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory 
far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Look, the things that are seen, this present world and all of their struggles, it's all passing away, but there is something that is unseen, an everlasting joy that is to come that will be ours one day, and that is a cause for joy. So look, what you're going through, uh, I mean, just this past week, I've talked to so many people, whether it's mom or dad sick or someone lost a family member to COVID or someone is losing their job or getting out of the military or on and on and on it goes, you realize that there is nothing that is perplexing enough, painful enough, difficult enough that can still away your joy. That is God's promise to us. So Paul says, look, Philippians, I don't want you to mourn. I don't want you to be bitter. I don't want you to lose the faith. I don't want you to look at my circumstances and think God is not for me and not for you. What mattered most to Paul was that, man, is the gospel advancing? People getting saved? Is the church maturing? My circumstances have turned out, Paul says, for the greater progress of the gospel. And we look at that and say, wow, what an attitude For him to say, if I die for the cause of Christ, I can rejoice. And I want you to rejoice with me. I rarely quote a Catholic, so you might have to forgive me for this. But truth is truth. And there is an English writer named Evelyn Underhill who provides this beautiful picture of what happy obedience is. Listen to what she says. She writes this. A Christian should be like a sheepdog. When the shepherd wants him to do something, he lies down at his feet. He looks intently into the shepherd's eyes and listens without budging until he has understood the mind of his master. Then he jumps to his feet and runs to do it. And then she writes, and the third characteristic, which is not less important, at no moment does the dog stop wagging its tail. Listen, there are very few commands in Scripture that have larger implications for everyday life. You might not be able to rejoice in your circumstances, but you can rejoice in the God who is sovereign and providential over your circumstances. Paul endured incredible suffering. Just imagine if you lived that life, being treated unfairly, without a break, every day, persecuted. And he never once said, why is this happening to me? Why did God give me the short end of the stick? Why am I enduring all these things? Never once does that come out of his mouth or pen. For Paul, pouring himself out, striving and suffering for Christ, striving to see the church mature was his greatest Delight, And so he considered all those sufferings his highest privilege. And he says, I want to fill up. I want to fill up what is lacking. Paul's life was being poured out. He poured out his, the entirety of his ministry. And as we come to us and as we think about our lives, and we measure it up to Paul, he wasn't taking pride in his national identity, he wasn't taking pride in his religious achievements, he wasn't taking pride in all the accolades that came his way from being an astute Jew. He left all that behind and said, I count it all but loss. And so when we look at our life, when we look at Paul's life, we have to ask the question, am I pouring myself out in that way? Or am I clinging to my own life? my own desires, my own dreams, my own passions. Here's the reality. Time is ticking. It's like sand in an hourglass. You're pouring yourself out to something. You are spending your time somehow. You are giving yourself to some activity, some pursuit, some hobby. All of us are pouring ourselves out to something. The question is, what are you pouring yourself out for? Two, one of the most transforming books I ever read was Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. It it rocked my world. The reality is, is that we can live a wasted life. 
if we give all of our time to things that don't matter very much. In that book, Piper talks about C.T. Studd, and he has a poem. And I remember reading that poem and thinking, man, that is a great poem. But I didn't know anything about C.T. Studd. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about C.T. Studd. Does that name sound familiar to you? He was a brother who grew up in England. His father had a fortune. He made his fortune overseas. And he was going to be the inheritor of this fortune. When his dad died, he got all the money. He could do whatever he wants. He was educated. He was smart, good looking. He was successful in college. He was a cricket player. But one day, Hudson Taylor visited, and he called for missionaries to come to China. And C.T. Studd, along with six others from Cambridge, surrendered their lives to be missionaries, and then they headed to China. And they were dubbed the Cambridge Seven. Studd goes off to China and ministers the gospel there, and then he gets sick and has to come home. But when he feels better, he actually goes and takes the gospel to India and then to Africa. Before he died, he wrote this poem, and it is in Don't Waste Your Life. The poem reads this, only one life. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life and still small voice gently pleads for a better choice, bidding my selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And then he adds this extra half stanza. He says, and when I am, when I am dying, how happy I will be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Brothers and sisters, there is no better way for you to spend your life than in the service of Christ. I want you, as you go home, to think about ways that you can pour yourself out. How can you pour yourself out, husbands, to your spouse? It's so easy for us to be selfish, to be so self-consumed. But, but maybe your spouse needs you to step up, men, and be better leaders in the home to lead in prayer, to lead in Bible study, to lead in reading, to lead in evangelism, to be the kind of man that God wants you to be. And also know this, men, that your kids are watching you. Your kids are observing what's important to you. Your kids are learning their priorities by watching daddy at home. And wives, I know sometimes you feel like, man, I'm, I don't get to do a whole lot. I just, I'm staying at home and I'm with the kids all the time. I've said this over and over again. There is no greater honor that you are modeling for your daughters what biblical womanhood is. That you're giving them a picture of the beauty of what it means to follow Christ. And you say, well, Don, what about me, man? I'm single. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. What, what do I do? Well, hey, the Lord has given you his Holy Spirit. He has united you to the church. He's gifted you, and he wants you to use your gifts to serve the body you, more than all the rest of us, have the time and the energy and the stamina and the availability to give yourself for Christ. And so all of us, all of us as a church, should be devoted, singularly devoted, to pouring out our lives for the cause of Christ because he is worth it. Let's pray. Lord, what an example what a pattern the Apostle Paul provides for us in the Scripture. We're thankful for this record, this account, this history. It's not fairy tale. It's not some 
story, it's reality, that this man poured himself out on the sacrificial service of a Philippian church. What a beautiful picture of the camaraderie and the partnership and the fellowship that Paul had with these people. And Lord, we're encouraged by that because we know that their efforts, their pursuits, all, all, all the time they invested to advancing the gospel, it is worth it. And Lord, in large part, we are recipients of their faithfulness. We're here as a local church because of their faithful ministry. And so we thank you for that. And we thank you, God, that you've called us to work. You want us to be active. You don't want us to be sitting in the pews and fans, but participants, competitors, athletes, soldiers, those that give ourselves fully, completely, and joyfully to the work of service, knowing that one day, Lord, there will be a reward and there will be no greater joy and satisfaction than seeing Christ say, well done, good and faithful servants. Lord, we long for that day. Help us to be faithful every day as we await those words and that joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.